God, I pray as we uh, gather together this morning that you would remind us of the words of Jesus who said that apart from him, we can do nothing. God, we come to this text this morning and we acknowledge our neediness. We acknowledge our dependency upon you to give us spiritual wisdom and understanding. Lord, to not just hear the word, but to be doers of the word. I pray, God, as we um, discuss a very familiar topic, your grace. I pray, oh God, that you would help us to be stunned by it. Lord, I pray that you would cause the, the jaws of our heart to drop at the wondrous nature of your grace. So Lord, be our teacher, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, one of my favorite places to visit is Hilton Head, South Carolina. Remember the first time I went there with my wife, Lindsay, it was actually the time that I proposed to her. I remember getting engaged there on the beach and just kind of a special place that it's been for us uh, over the years. But man, I will never forget uh, proposing to Lindsay. Uh, not only was I asking her the most important question of my life, will you marry me? But I, was ask, uh, but I was also holding in my hand the most expensive purchase that I have ever made. And to be honest with you, I'm not really sure which one I was more nervous about. Uh, because I was confident in her answer, I knew that I wanted to spend the rest of my life with her. But here I had in my possession uh, this expensive diamond, and I couldn't wait to get this out of my possession and on her finger. Well, just a spoiler alert, she said yes, if you didn't already know that. Uh, and when she said yes, uh, she did what most newly engaged women do. They take that ring and they put it on their finger and, and they look at it from different angles. They're enamored by it. They start to, to delight in that ring, which is so interesting when you think about a diamond ring. A diamond ring uh, contains a beauty that is multifaceted. Its beauty is not just from one angle, but uh, from many the more that you turn it, the more that you rotate it, it seems as if the beauty deepens. Now, the gospel of Jesus Christ has been described as a multifaceted diamond. Like a diamond, uh, the gospel contains various sides and dimensions and facets, if you will, that creates a new glimmer or a new sparkle with every turn and, and rotation of it. And we associate diamonds with beauty because we uh, study them, we stare at them, we uh, delight in them. Well, to a much greater degree, this is what the gospel should be for every believer. And yet, for some Christians, what the gospel becomes is it's reduced to this ticket that gets them into the club of Christianity. And when you enter into the club of Christianity, you leave the ticket, you leave the gospel with the man at the entrance and move on to other things. I want to remind us this morning through Titus 2 that the gospel is not just the message of salvation for sinners. It is. But it's not just something that gets us into Christianity but the gospel is a power and a motivation to help us live faithfully in the Christian life. And I think the key is understanding the multifaceted nature of the grace that's found in the gospel. Let me just be very blunt with you. Let me tell you who this message is for today. This message is for those of us who believe the lie that you have blown it so badly morally, maybe even so frequently, that you've somehow convinced yourself that you are beyond the grace of God. This message is for you today. 
This message is also for those who are so morally clean that you've somehow convinced yourself you don't need God's grace any longer. This message is for you as well. This message is also for those who love God's grace. But if you are honest today, you may only understand God's grace from one facet or one side or one dimension. See, what Paul does here in this passage is he shows us the multifaceted nature of the grace in the gospel. In fact, he's going to show us four different sides of God's grace that I hope will encourage and challenge us today. Let's look at the most popular facet. Let's look at the most popular side, and that is that grace is available. Grace is available. Verse 11, and specifically the word for in verse 11, is used to tie together our passage with the passage that comes before it, verses 1 through 10, and it helps explain why God's people should live in a way that, it, that makes the gospel attractive, if you remember last week's message. The reason is because, verse 11, the grace of God has appeared, and it's brought salvation for all people. Okay, Paul is introducing for us the important category of God's grace. And we all know grace is important as Christians, right? I don't know if you knew this, but grace shows up over 131 times in the Bible. But 124 of those show up in the New Testament. And 86 of the 124 uh, are used by the Apostle Paul. Paul loves grace. He loves the, the category of grace. Uh, a short but powerful definition of grace is that it is undeserved favor. Undeserved favor. We see grace used in this way in Romans chapter 3, verse 24. Paul says that we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So grace is what inclines God to give good gifts that are free and undeserved to sinners. That grace is what explains why God treats us so much better than what we deserve. It's all because of his grace. In verse 11, Paul is announcing that salvation is available because this saving grace has appeared. What's he referring to? He's referring to, of course, Jesus, that Jesus has appeared. And 2,000 years ago, through his death and through his resurrection, he offers salvation for all who believe. Now, again, this facet of grace is the most popular. It's a very important aspect of grace. But I want to highlight just one phrase here in verse 11 that just popped out to me. It's the phrase, for all people. That Paul here is not just referring to all ethnicities. He's not just referring to men and women. He's not just referring to the educated and the uneducated or the rich and the poor. No, Paul is declaring that salvation is available, especially for those who know that they are sinners. That grace is available for those who understand their need for God's grace. That grace is available for those who are utterly exhausted from trying to clean themselves up morally. Grace is for those who understand that they can't scrub hard enough to remove the dirtiness of their sin. That grace is for the broken. Grace is for those who have come to the end of themselves. Grace is for those who are riddled with shame. 
In fact, for all people, might be written specifically for those who have believed the lie that they are too far gone for God to save. This is a reminder that grace is available to you today. And what's so beautiful about this is that when grace appears, when grace tracks you down, if you will, finds your address, uh, blows down the door of your heart, guess what it brings? It brings salvation. It brings forgiveness. It brings eternal life. It's grace that confronts our sin. It's grace that enables us to put our faith in Jesus. It's grace that makes us a child of God where we are forever accepted, not because of our works, not because of our good deeds, but all because of Jesus. See, it's all because of grace that that Jesus did something for us 2,000 years ago that none of us could have done, that Jesus satisfied the wrath of God by dying in our place, that Jesus took our penalty by dying on the cross for us. That's all because of grace, church. It's all because of grace that, that takes you, a sinner, and God declares that you have been forgiven. That's all grace. Like what we're talking about here this morning is mind-blowing grace. It's grace that's not logical. It doesn't make sense. Some people call it the scandal of God's grace because you have the God of the universe dying in the place of sinners. How in the world does that make sense? How in the world would, would you or I come up with the story of redemption in that way. And yet it's all because of grace. And yes, it has appeared, yes. Yes and amen. But here's the most important question. The most important question today is, has this grace appeared to you in your life? Have you accepted the grace of God by putting your faith in Jesus? Have you said yes to the invitation of God's grace and eternal life in him. And if you haven't, and you want to, you want to have a conversation, we'd love to talk to you about what it looks like to become a Christian. You can stop by the next steps area. You can come find me after the service. We'd love to talk with you about what it means to be a Christian. But Paul doesn't stop here. Verses 12 through 14, he goes on. And remember, he's trying to give these different facets of grace. Here's another one. He shows us how grace shapes how we live. All right, so verse 11, grace saves. Verses 12 through 14, grace shapes. So yes, grace is undeserved favor. Yes and amen. But there's another dimension to grace. Grace, if you will, is a power. It's an influence. It is a force of God that enables us toward obedience. Let me show you how grace is used uh, in this way throughout the Bible. I'll give you one example, 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may do what? You may abound in every good work. So with this verse, and there's other examples, it seems as though that grace is not only a disposition or inclination in the nature of God, but it's also an influence, a power, and a force of God that can change our capacity for obedience. This is how Paul is talking about grace in verses 12 through 14. 
Notice here, he says that this grace in the gospel does what in verse 12? It trains us. So verse 11, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. But now verse 12, this same grace now trains us in how to live. Okay, so grace not only pronounces forgiveness, which is unbelievable, but grace rolls up, rolls up its sleeves, if you will, and it gets to work in the battle against sin in our lives. It, it hunts down every graceless enemy of our soul. I mean, I love this word training in verse 12. It's a fascinating word. It actually means to tutor or to instruct or to teach. And I love this word so much because I think we get a really helpful image of the Christian life. I think what Paul is, is saying here is that when you receive by faith the grace that's in the gospel, when you become a Christian, you are now put into this lifelong classroom called the Christian life, called spiritual growth or sanctification. And God, through the teacher of grace, has various lessons for you and I to learn and to grow in. The lesson of marriage and parenting and singleness and purity and our, how to use our money and how, how we are to live godly lives in the workplace, how, how we suffer well and go through trials. And the list goes on and on and on. That God, through the teacher of grace, wants to show us how to apply the gospel in every area of our lives. I thought about that, and I don't know if you remember this, as a, as a student back in, in school, when the, the regular teacher was out for the day, there was a level of excitement in the air, right? You're wondering, what kind of substitute teacher are we going to get today? Are we going to get the kind of substitute teacher where everything goes, you know, there's no formal lesson you don't really have to follow the rules. You can go to the bathroom as many times as you want. Or are you going to get the kind of substitute teacher that seems to be more strict than the regular teacher? You know, kind of enjoys having a position of authority, doesn't really care about being liked, right? And depending on what kind of substitute teacher you got that day, it shaped the entire classroom. Well, I want you to think about that image. I want you to think about that experience because here's the danger is that there are a lot of Christians who are okay with receiving the grace that's found in the gospel that saves them and places them into this classroom of the Christian life. But there are some who have substituted the teacher of God's grace for a different kind of teacher. And that new teacher is shaping how they live. And so my question for you today is, what kind of teacher in the Christian life are you submitting to? What kind of teacher are you allowing to train you and to instruct you and to shape you? Is it the teacher of God's grace or is it a different kind of teacher? Maybe the teacher of legalism who stands up there and says, in order for God to love you, you must follow all the rules. Or maybe the teacher of licentiousness. This teacher stands up and says, I'm going to give you license to live however you want to live. You can sin because after all, God will forgive you. Or maybe it's the teacher of performance that says you are what you do. Or what about the teacher of shame 
stands up there and reminds you of all your sin from the past, all of your mistakes, and says, this is who you, you are. Or what about the teacher of comparison that says, you need to find your worth and how you stack up with other people. You need to have more and better. Or what about the teacher who tries to convince you that you don't actually belong in this classroom at all, that you don't belong in God's family. Your past is too dirty. You have too much sin in your life. See, this is a really important question because it shapes how we live. It instructs how we apply the gospel. And what Paul does here in verses 12 through 14 is he masterfully calls us and woos us to put the grace in the gospel back in as the teacher in our lives as we live out the Christian life. So I want to show you what this looks like. And here's really another facet of grace. Grace in verse 12 teaches us to say no to sin, right? So grace is not only available, not only saves us, but again, it's training us. And here, first part of 12a, it's, it's training us to say no to sin. If you look at verse 12a, it's training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. That word renounce is a severe word. In fact, it's the same word Jesus used in, in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, when he said that if anyone would come after me, let him deny or renounce himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. All right, so when we deny ungodliness, when we renounce it, we can look at that word ungodliness and, and, it, and it's kind of abstract for us. But let me remind us, that our sin is something that we used to love. It, was, it used to be very precious to us. And so this word renounce, this word deny, we are taking something that we used to love, that we used to hold as precious, and grace teaches us to put it to death. In fact, some translations, if you have the NIV, it translates verse 12 this way, that grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Again, ungodliness is this irreverence for God, this flippancy toward God. Worldly passions is lusting for things of this world, and yet grace teaches us to say no. Now, what kind of no is this? In the Beals household, as we're you know, responding to our kids' requests, there are different kinds of no's. There's the very calm no, and then there's the, the more passionate no, where you're putting your foot down as a parent. Look, the no of grace here is not the calm no that you and I uh, exert maybe every day when you get a phone call from an unknown number and you say, decline, no, not picking that call up. This is not the, the no of, of responding to an invitation to a party or a, a wedding and you RSVP very calmly, no. No, the no of grace is the difficult no of self-denial. It is refusing to gratify the inner beast that is barking for more satisfaction. See, grace meets us in those difficult temptations, and it empowers us to meet our sin and our temptations at the door of our hearts to hear its desperate pleas, and to still say no. That's the role of grace in our lives. But let me clear something up real quick. Let me provide some clarity 
to the confusion that some have toward the teacher of grace. See, some think that the teacher of grace actually will lead God's people towards sinning all the more. Some people would say, Pastor, you don't want to preach too much on grace. Your people are going to sin all the more. They're going to treat grace like, the, like a, a grace card that you just swipe after you sin. And yet, church, that's a perversion of grace. That Paul addresses that in Romans 6. He says that grace doesn't lead us to sin all the more. In fact, Jude talks about this as a perversion of grace. In Jude 1, uh, verse 4, it says, For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. So we're not talking about grace as a license to do whatever you want. No, grace biblically opens our eyes to seeing the emptiness, the illusion, and the destructiveness of our temptations, and it trains us to decline that invitation to sin. To illustrate this, um, let, me, let me use this il- illustration. This is fresh off the weekend. Uh, let me preface it by saying that I love the fall. I love the changing of colors. I love delighting in God's creation. But this time of year reminds me that I have a lot of work to do. I've got these two uh, big trees in my front yard. And this time of year, all those leaves fall and, and they cover my front yard. Like you can barely see any grass. There are thousands of these leaves. And I think to myself, okay, I gotta gear myself up because I gotta rake these leaves. I gotta, I gotta remove these leaves somehow. And I just did it this weekend, and uh, it was not a fun process. This is a very sanctifying process. And I thought about it, and I, I was like, man, there are two different ways I can do this. And unfortunately, I did it the unwise way, where uh, option number one is you can do it kind of the manual way, where you just grab a rake, and you start to rake. And this motion right here is very sore for me still, very tender. But you start raking, right, all these leaves into various piles, and then you take, you know, one pile at a time of leaves and you put it in the bag. I had over 30 bags of leaves this weekend. It's crazy. And, and, and that's just not a fun process at all, right? Not a lot of joy. Took forever, right? Option two, and I saw my neighbor doing this and I should have followed his lead, is you use a leaf blower, right? Who would have thought? You know, you walk around in your, in your yard and, and this was Friday for me. So it was beautiful weather. And you just kind of walk around in your yard and you kind of blow these leaves into piles, And you still have to put some work into it by putting the leaves in the bag, but just seem more enjoyable. Seem like a a quicker process. All right, now follow the analogy here. If, If our lives are like my front yard and the leaves represent the various sins that are in our lives that tend to cover our lives at times, then I want to suggest to you this morning that there is a leaf blowing power that is found in the grace of the gospel that is far superior than our weak and draining and often powerless raking. That there are far too many Christians who are relying on their own power, who are relying on their own determination and motivation, rake after rake after rake after rake, where it seems like those leaves are endless. Like those blisters on your hands just seemingly do not go away, 
when the gospel of, God, of God's grace, this leaf-blowing power, is readily available for you. And look, God's grace in the gospel does not teach us to work less, but it, it trains us to rely on a supernatural power to say no to sin. You don't rake harder or rake more. No, you focus on the beauty of Jesus. And the more that you delight in Jesus, the more that you will say no to sin. And this leads to another facet of God's grace that, that helps us in this way. Number three here is that grace trains our hearts what to long for. So grace has not only appeared, it's not only available, it not only trains us to say no, but grace also trains our hearts what to long for. Look at verse 12 here. It says, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. So grace not only teaches us to say no, it teaches us to say yes to righteousness. Now how? Well, grace trains us to hope for what is right. Look at verse 13. It says, this is training us to wait or as we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we are waiting for our great hope, who is Jesus, to come back again. All right, so if the, the first coming of Jesus was the manifestation of his grace, the second coming of Jesus is the manifestation of God's glory. But notice the connection here. I think what Paul is saying is that our longings will follow what we put our hope in. Our desires always chase after our hope. For example, if you put your hope in a job to satisfy you, your longings will follow that job. If you put your hope in a relationship to satisfy you or, or having a certain amount of money, your longings are going to follow that. Whatever you put your hope in, your longings will follow. And what Paul is saying here is that grace trains our hearts to long for Jesus by ensuring that our ultimate hope is found in Jesus as we wait for his second coming. See, did you know that you can not only direct your hope, but you can determine what you long for? Like you can tell your hope where to go and guess what follows? Your desires and your longings follow. I just want to remind you, you are not at the mercy of your circumstances when it comes to what you desire and where your hope is found. You're not at the mercy of your emotions and your feelings. You're not at the mercy of what other people say about you or what's happening out there in the world. You can tell where your hope to go and your longings will follow. And when grace has trained our hearts to be vigilant about ensuring that Jesus is the object of our hope, then the result is that you will be godly. You will live a life that's upright and self-controlled. Why? Because you're funneling your hope, you're funneling your longings and desires toward Jesus. And the more that you do that, the more you will live like him. I think this is so powerful when you're talking about life change, because we do what we want to do. We do what we desire and what we long for. And yet grace enters that space in our hearts where our longings are, where our hope is, 
And grace trains us to long for the right things. Grace reminds us that Jesus is so much better than what the world has to offer. That grace reminds us that all that Jesus accomplished, and it helps convince our hearts to choose Jesus over the things of this world. To go back to the illustration of of the classroom in the Christian life, grace as our teacher does not just focus on our will, doesn't just stand up and command us to obey, 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 do, 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 perform, perform, perform. No, the predominant lesson in the classroom of the Christian life is that grace as our teacher shows us these various pictures of Jesus. It says, look at how beautiful Jesus is. Look at how faithful Jesus is. Look at how steadfast Jesus is. Look at how kind and, and, and powerful Jesus is. The object lesson in the, in the classroom as grace as our teacher is Jesus. There are posters up of Jesus all around in this classroom of the Christian life. Why? Because the more that we see him exalted and lifted up, the more that that stirs our longings for Jesus as we put our hope in him. That's why Paul uses these words in verse 13 of great and savior and glory. He's not just throwing those words in there as Christian cliches. He's trying to move us towards seeing Jesus as the exalted one so that our hope we can put in Christ and our desires will follow what we put our hope in. And grace is so active. Grace is not just stagnant in our lives. It's not just grace is what saves us. Grace is active in our lives on a daily basis. But here's the fourth facet as we consider the diamond of God's grace. The last one here is that grace reminds us who we belong to. Look at verse 14. Paul says, referring to Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And notice the language of identity here. Paul is saying that God's grace is displayed in Jesus giving himself up on the cross in order to redeem us. Now that word redeem means to rescue or it means to to set free. In fact, the word redemption in Paul's day here was often used in the context of slavery. So what Paul's saying here in verse 14 is that before God saved us, we were slaves to sin. Our master was sin. And yet verse 14 is declaring that because of what Jesus did on the cross and through his resurrection, Jesus has broken those chains of sin. He's given us a new master, God himself, who is actually a loving father. And as a result of this, we belong to God. We are his possession. We are his people. And it's all because of grace. And this is important because when you understand who you are and whose you are, you start to live out of the reality of security rather than fear. Like belonging to God, having your identity rooted deeply in Jesus Christ means that no one, no thing will snatch you from his hand that you belong to God, you are his forever 
and ever. And that removes fear. That removes the thought of, man, if I mess up, will he still accept me? If, if I sin, will he still love me? Look, grace was not given to you because you earned it, and grace will not be taken away from you because you've blown it. Grace removes the burden of trying to appease God with our good works. Grace removes the, the weight of trying to somehow put God in our debt with our good deeds. That, that grace kind of puts its arms around us and reminds us, you belong to God forever and nothing will ever change that. So when your former sins show up at the doorstep of your heart, grace helps us to meet our sin at the door and to say no to those invitations and to remind that sin, those temptations, I am not yours anymore. I don't belong to you anymore. I belong to God. See, this grace, Paul is saying, it has appeared, and it's training, it's working, and it's causing us to be obedient to the one who has purchased our salvation. Man, can I tell you what I think is the most powerful truth in the gospel? One of the most tangible truths that we experience when you become a Christian, when you belong to God, is the reality that God delights in you. Man, this is, this is so powerful when you actually believe this truth that God doesn't just put up with his people. He doesn't just like us. He doesn't just love us, but God Almighty, the God of the, of the universe, his disposition towards his people is one of joy. He, he smiles and, and delights in his people. That, that God is not up in heaven with his arms crossed, frowning and shaking his head whenever you sin. No, Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17 declares that God sings over his people because he delights in them. He smiles upon his people because you belong to him, that you are hidden in Jesus. The righteousness of Christ now covers you like a robe covering us. Man, when that truth, when you actually believe that, when, when you actually take hold of that and it gets into the deep places of your heart, it is a game changer. It changes the way that you live, it changes the way that you go after obedience. That grace is what defines us now. That your sin doesn't define you. Your past doesn't define you. Your performance doesn't define you. Look, what other people say about you does not define you. Grace defines you because you belong to God forever. All because of his grace. I'll close with this, but I couldn't help notice how much God's grace wants us to focus not on ourselves, but wants the focus of our hearts to be on God. Notice in three different places, grace wants us to look upward, verse 13, to look upward at the appearing of Jesus in his second coming. Grace wants us to look backward, verse 14, at Jesus' sacrifice who gave himself up to redeem us. And grace also 
wants us to look forward, verse 13, as we wait for Jesus to return. Upward, backward, and forward. You see the multifaceted grace in the gospel? See how beautiful it is, just like a diamond, an endless amount of beauty. Here's the question. Are you studying it? Are you delighting in it? And are you using the gospel to remind you of God's endless love and commitment to you? See, the more of the gospel you have in your life, the more changed your life will become. Let's pray together. God, we do give you praise for your endless grace. God, we thank you that you are a God who lavishes his grace upon his people, that you are not stingy with it. Lord, you give us all the grace that we need exactly when we need it. Lord, we thank you for this topic and this concept, something that we can never fully exhaust, has so many facets, so many dimensions. Lord, help us to explore the depths and the beauty of your grace. We thank you that grace leads us right to Jesus, that we see his power, we see his beauty, we see his might. Lord, help us to be people who are marked and changed by this grace. We pray in Christ's name, amen.